0: Welcome to the Research Reimagine podcast, brought to you by Nottingham Trent University. I'm your host, Helen Darby-Dowman, and I'll be inviting some of NTU's brightest minds to explore how their research is helping us to deepen our understanding of the world. From online addictions to transgender rights and sleep disorders, listen as we discuss some of society's most pressing challenges and uncover some of the ways our research is making a difference. There's recently been a global debate on who is eligible to compete in women's sports, specifically whether trans women should be allowed to compete in female categories. Trans women have already been barred from competing in female categories for elite level swimming and rugby league fixtures, with other sports looking to follow suit. Swimming's governing body, FINA, last year voted to restrict the participation of trans women who have gone through male puberty, which is currently the most restricted rule to be issued by an Olympic sports body. FINA have stated that those who are ineligible to compete may participate in open categories that they plan to develop in the future alongside men. Trans rights campaigners argue that excluding trans athletes is harmful and discriminatory, whilst critics say that trans women have an unfair physical advantage in female competition. The current media narrative appears to be missing one side of the debate. Are these decisions which are excluding trans and gender diverse athletes legal? And how are these decisions impacting trans and gender diverse athletes psychologically? To help us answer these questions, we're joined by two senior researchers whose research focuses on
1: trans and gender diverse issues. Welcome, Beth. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so um, my name is Dr. Beth Jones. Um, I'm a senior lecturer within the Department of um, Psychology. I identify as a cis female and my preferred pronouns are she, her. Um, And my research looks at um, the health and well-being of marginalised populations. And I've um, kind of especially focused on the health and well-being of trans and gender diverse people. And Seema, welcome to. We just also give us a little introduction.
2: Sure, um, my name is Dr. Seema Patel. I'm a senior lecturer in law at Nottingham Law School. I identify as cis female and my preferred pronouns are she, her. My research looks at discrimination in sport and the regulatory balance between inclusion and exclusion in competitive sport. So
0: thank you both for joining us today. Before we get started, it might be useful for our listeners if you could define the different terms we'll be discussing this episode. So Beth, can you explain what we mean when we talk about trans and gender diverse people?
1: Yes, yeah, so transgender diverse people are those that experience an incongruence between the gender that they're assigned at birth and their gender identity. And they're both um, umbrella terms, so trans and gender diverse, that are used to capture Um, a wide range of different um, gender identities and they can be really useful for things like today, today's um, discussion, but it's important to, I suppose, emphasise that not everyone will use these terms, identify with them. Um, Usually we use trans to describe individuals who identify within the binary, so uh, male or female, and we'll use um, gender diverse to um, describe individuals who have a gender identity outside this binary gender system. Um, But again, it's important to emphasise that this um, terminology, terminology in this area is constantly evolving. And although transgender diverse is um, perhaps um, the most widely used and accepted, um, today that might not necessarily be the case um, tomorrow. Um, in terms of um, cis, so we'll be using cisgender throughout today's um, podcast. Um, and this is used to describe individuals that don't experience that um, incongruence between their gender assigned at birth and gender identity. And again, we acknowledge that not everyone identifies with this term, but for conversations like this, it's really useful to have that term to capture those individuals that don't experience the incongruence.
0: The global discourse about trans inclusion in sports has tended to be focused on the biological side of the debate, with many saying that trans women have an unfair physical advantage over cis women in female competition. Do you have any comments on the current research on the trans athletes and the current global debate?
2: Well, uh, from a biological perspective, um, I think that it's generally assumed based on a number of studies that the trans female athletes retain a physiological advantage. Um, and that is currently at odds with the binary categorisation of male and female within sport. So on that uh, basis, it's argued that trans female athletes shouldn't compete in the female category, because they will have an unfair advantage
1: over cis female athletes. And how does your research differ to this debate? I'm a health psychologist, so I'm very much interested in um, health and wellbeing, um, especially of uh, marginalised populations like trans and gender diverse people. And I kind of come um, to this debate with the the consideration of the kind of psychological implications that um, preventing trans gender diverse people competing in sport might have. So it kind of has increased massively, the negative narrative around these people's um, lives, which we know causes a great you know, degree of of, um, distress. And we know that that does have implications for people's psychological wellbeing, but also their physical health as well. And that's quite problematic, because there's also a wealth of research that has found that actually being physically active um, has, you know, a lot of of, um, psychological benefits, not only mental health, but this idea of kind of um, being socially connected as well. So that's kind of um, the angle that that I approach this um, from. And my perspective is a legal
2: perspective. So I'm focused on law and regulation and ensuring that any rules that are in place to determine eligibility are are founded upon principles of uh, law and human rights to ensure that trans athletes also um, are able to assert their rights regardless of whether they're in society or in sport. So my angle focuses on on the law and human rights.
0: And so can you explain to me a bit about why this topic is
1: so important to you both? Yeah, I got into psychology as an undergraduate because I've always been interested in, I suppose, making the world more inclusive, making society more inclusive. And I'm really passionate about stigma and the negative implications of stigma. Hence, I've kind of um, got into this area of research looking at a really vulnerable and marginalised population within society. Uh, and for me, um, my research uh, began in discrimination, so sports law is
2: my area, and, and when I started looking at the, the participation of trans athletes in sport 20 years ago, it was very hypothetical, we had maybe one or two instances, um, and we've seen a, a massive development and evolution of that over the last 20 years. And now it's the center of media, uh, global media attention. Um, But I am very passionate about ensuring that athletes are treated fairly and that their rights are not diminished because they are participating in sport.
0: And so you kind of touched on it just there Seema, but what are some of the challenges that you face with with your uh, research? And, And I guess in that kind of looking at how do you support the trans and gender diverse people?
2: It's a really um, key question at the moment. Uh, the debate has become really polarised, um, and I think it's fair to say quite toxic at times. Uh, public opinion is quite heated on the matter of whether a trans female athlete should be able to compete in the female category or not. And everybody, rightly so, has an opinion on it. But I think what becomes very blurred is the line between opinion and fact. And I think um, researchers like myself and Beth have really focused on ensuring that, that fact and evidence drive this rather than
1: assumptions. Absolutely, no. I I agree with that, and I think um, it's 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 problematic the kind of narrative that's being been um, held in society at the minute because trans voices get lost in in all of this, um, and I personally find that that really problematic. That um, it seems to be dominated by cis people, and um, we're forgetting actually that this is about real people's um, lives.
0: So Beth, can you explain a bit about the psychology side of things, and perhaps what we or you know when you're talking about everybody's got an opinion and it's you know it is a big debate what is it that is maybe the lack of understanding from from many people's point of view
1: yeah so I think obviously there's um the argument around testosterone which is um prominent um and I think as we've already kind of touched on the the evidence there um is is weak um so as scientists we want policies to be underpinned by robust direct evidence and unfortunately that is th- that is lacking in this area so there's a lack of um direct research with trans people looking at how these hormones interact with their athletic ability um but what we do have a wealth of is evidence that have supported um you know the the stigma the dis- discrimination um that these people experience the impact that that has on these people's lives. So um, we know that it has implications for mental wellbeing, um, is associated with increased suicidal um, tendencies within this population. And although these kind of policies and arguments Um, at times are are meant to be focused on elite athletes they do have real impacts on um, even you know recreational sport and people wanting to take part in in sport at um, you know grassroots levels and that was evidenced through research that I did um, back in 2018, where young people spoke, young trans people spoke about these policies and how, even though they just wanted to take part in their local football team, um, you know they they felt fearful of doing so because they were aware of the these policies and the negative kind of narrative that surrounded them.
0: And so, what sort of interventions do we need to put in place, or what kind of interventions are are you working on?
1: For me, I am very interested in um, addressing negative societal attitudes. And I think that research at the minute is so timely, um, given that negative narratives, unfortunately, have um, really grown, um, you know, over even the past week um, within the media. So I'm really interested in addressing those negative um, attitudes, understanding um, why people might hold those, and then how we can um, address them with different types of um, interventions. So I kind of look at it from that perspective so addressing it societally Um, but also for me it's about supporting trans people um, making society more inclusive Um, and that is in part looking at physical activity and how we can um, make those spaces more inclusive but also kind of um, broader community activities around alleviating loneliness enhancing social connection Um, and I think that is also with the aim of I suppose um promoting contact um, between cis and trans people to um, perhaps address some of those negative attitudes as well
0: have you, is there sort of any um, interventions that have been put in place where you've seen things working very well or, you know, have you got any examples that you can share with us?
1: Um, there are a lot of kind of community level um, interventions. So a lot of community groups um, available that when trans or other marginalised groups take part in, um, they can be really beneficial um, for for this, um, you know, population's mental health. Um in terms of like um, sport and exercise, you know, moving towards making these spaces more inclusive. So, yeah.
0: And, Seba, from a law perspective, what are the legal implications of some of these decisions?
2: Um, just to touch on some of the things Beth has said there, um, it's really uh, valuable that we do hear uh, about the lived experiences of these athletes. And there's been a lot been said this week about um, fear that cis female athletes are fearful of speaking out, trans female athletes are fearful of speaking out. And I I respect that, and I think there needs to be a much more open platform for both groups to be able to speak about these things. But from a research perspective, absolutely, we have an absence of hearing from the lived experiences of trans female athletes because the group is so uh, so small, essentially. Um, And also... When we're looking at this debate, we can't just look at this from a science point of view. We have to look at this from a psychological, social and legal perspective. And I think that's what makes this so important when you hear Beth's research. You can't ignore that when you're trying to determine eligibility. That's really, really important research we need to listen to. The the legal landscape is really interesting at the moment because that is also developing. If we go outside of sport, there is a robust human rights framework that exists at an international, regional and domestic level and within uh, those levels provisions such as the Universal Declaration of Human Rights seeks to protect us from discrimination and promote equality on the grounds of sex and other status and what's happening is gender identity has uh, has been accepted as encompassed within the wide definitions of sex or other status but those reforms are still taking place. If we look at a domestic level in in the UK, we have the Equality Act and the Gender Recognition Act, which recognises the rights of um, uh, trans people. However, there is an exemption clause within those um, provisions that says, um, that allows sport to um, uh, exclude trans people or, or, or people if it is a gender affected activity. Um, uh, my issue with that, based on my research, is that the exemption provision has existed in our legislation for a very long time, and it's evolved to now exist in the Equality Act and the Gender Recognition Act. But I feel that it needs review, particularly review in a modern society, to ensure that it's fit for purpose. And what mustn't be forgotten is that it can only apply if it's a proportionate means of achieving a legitimate aim. And sports are holding on to that exemption to say, okay, we can then ban trans people from competing. But I think that that legislation, again, does need reform and review. So sports bodies are reacting to this by uh, introducing policies that either ban trans people, some may allow, some may place conditions on that participation. And and we have kind of a piecemeal approach to this at the moment. Um, And I think that's part of the problem. There there is a lack of harmonisation but it's true that not one size fits all when it comes to developing this policy and it is very sport specific I believe it's very case specific as well which adds to the complexity. I mean they talk about dif- different categories aren't they talk
0: about creating maybe an open category certainly in some sports I mean Beth talk to me a little bit about how that has an implication perhaps for trans and uh, gender diverse people
1: yeah so i think obviously they're introducing this to mitigate some of the the issues and the concerns um but i think for for a lot of trans people gender diverse people this idea of an open category um would be quite distressing firstly because you're outing yourself um, as trans or gender diverse by partaking in an open category Um, but also um within that, it can be really distressing, I suppose, to be competing alongside perhaps, um, you know, people who are of a different gender identity to you. So when I've spoken to people in the past about competing in um, in accordance with the gender that they are assigned at birth, rather than their gender identity, they spoke about how that would be a really distressing experience because it doesn't align with their, their gender identity. So I think that um, this open category needs a lot of thought. Um, and we need to speak to trans and gender diverse people directly about how being part of an open category would make them feel.
0: Because obviously, it, it's kind of creating an environment where they can compete. But ultimately, on the psychological side of it, actually, it's not at all. So you're looking at one side, you're winning and on the other side, it's not. And certainly for those athletes, it's actually not an option is that what we're
1: yeah I think it would probably on the most part deter people from wanting to compete so it seems that you know its desired outcome is is not going to um, it's not going to be reality it's not going to encourage trans and gender diverse people to compete but actually through psychological distress deter them from from doing so
0: do you think part of this is just that you you made the comment that all female athletes cis athletes uh, transgender athletes they're actually feeling they can't make a comment. Is there is that kind of part of the problem, why we get this very polarised point of view, because there's only a, a few people actually voicing a very strong opinion?
2: I, I I think so. Um, I think that it is becoming... It wasn't like that uh, perhaps a few years back, but increasingly it is becoming like that. People don't feel they can um, speak up because there are perhaps minorities who are or who who are uh, speaking louder than uh, than the rest and, and that then polarizes the discussion
1: yeah, no, absolutely, I completely agree.
0: And what do you think the shift is? If you're saying, you know, go back a number of years, it wasn't quite like this. What? Why have we suddenly seen this sort of shift?
2: For me, um, it's it started with the cases uh, relating to athletes with sex variations who were duty chand and castor semenia. Semenya. And their cases really threw this into the spotlight. And as a result of sports bodies having to review those rules, the trans um, athletes rules were also um,
1: thrown um, to the center of public attention and I think that's where the switch happened yeah absolutely I think um yeah when you look back at um, the attention around those those athletes um that's when things really kind of um hit off with with trans athletes and they really became under the the spotlight especially trans female athletes
0: going back I know we, we're not here to talk about that wide debate or certainly what's in the in the press at the moment but is it that at the minute we're very much looking or what we see in our, and journalistic side in the press is very much about the biological side how do we go about trying to or tell me more about your research and how we're that will shape getting that more even viewpoint
1: yeah I think um, you know sometimes within the debates that I had as I said before people forget that these are real people this is real real people's lives that we're debating in effect and Looking at the psychological implications of these policies um, is really, really important. And I do think that it gives a fuller picture. It makes the debate um, more real. People can appreciate that this is about real people. And actually making these changes can have devastating effects on um, people's lives. And I think that that gets forgotten in, in a lot of this and for me yes i completely accept that biology and uh,
2: and those those issues are a key when you're looking at this debate but you cannot discuss this in isolation from legal factors and psychological and social factors uh, the law plays a, a, an intrinsic part of someone's right to work and participate in sport and and I'm not saying that should be prioritized in no way I'm saying it should be dealt with equally and if you're having a discussion around that table should be a number of experts from a a number of areas.
0: What we see obviously in the papers on the news on radio is very much always talking about elite level sport um is there is that really then having such an impact all the way down do you think into community level sport I mean you were saying obviously from a psychological point Beth that you are seeing the impact can you just explain explain a little bit further about that to us and sort of bring it to life for for what it means to people you've worked with?
1: Yeah we do see that these policies unfortunately have impact like at grassroots when people want to participate in sport at a recreational level and I personally find that really um, problematic Um, and I think sometimes sporting organisations, sporting clubs will implement these um, policies because they think that that is the right thing to do and they do it out of fear Um, but they don't look at whether that's going to be the right thing for people who might want to take part um, and the messages that that sends out. And, you know, referring back to that research, um, interview-based research that I did back in 2018, it was apparent that people were, trans people were really worried about being part of a a sports team and what that would mean for them. Um, Not only, I suppose, um, because it might, you know, out them, they're going to have to out themselves as trans, which a lot of people... You know understandably don't want to do um, but then the implications that that will have for them um, you know in terms of playing the sport will they receive discrimination from players um, both within their team outside what is that going to be like um, so you know it is really problematic and I think in all of this as well we uh, you know g- gender diverse people get lost as well um, so having this binary sport especially at grassroots at recreational levels can be really problematic for people that perhaps don't have a gender identity that is male or female. Um, So implementing them at that level kind of, yeah, is really problematic for people who have a gender identity outside the binary as well.
0: What are you hoping to achieve long term? And and what do you think needs to go on in order to make sure that we keep sport fair and inclusive for everyone?
2: I think for me, um, it's really key to say that we are making progress by talking about it, um, you know at the the, at the early stages of this research, uh, again it was very hypothetical not many people knew about it if you asked somebody in the street what a trans person was, they, I don't think they would really know, um, so I think there is progress being made and the fact that sports bodies are attempting to develop policy, to consult uh, with people about policy, that is that is progress, but it's it's perhaps not going far enough in terms in my opinion, in terms of Um, pulling in key legal issues, Mm -hmm. psychological issues and social issues. I think it needs to go further by respecting um, the uh, research in those fields rather than relying on um, a confined uh, group of experts uh, to determine eligibility.
1: Yeah, no, I completely agree. And, you know, Seema, I think having more conversations about this is really important. And, you know, I get asked a lot about this within you know, my professional life, but also my personal life. And by having a conversation with people, um, you do... You, you know you can't always change people's mind of, minds about this and you want them to have their own opinions but you do sh- see a shift in their understanding by sharing kind of other perspectives on it and i do think it's really important to have a variety of different experts um involved in this rather than just the emphasis on kind of this um, physiological um but i suppose it's even more than that it's just this focus on on testosterone and the other as- aspects um, of this that should be brought to the table are completely neglected at, at times.
2: And and I think one role of research, one one branch of research is obviously to educate. And so as researchers, our our job is is to educate people on on these issues um, and to ensure that truth drives the, the debate rather than the assumptions that are out there.
0: I mean, as researchers, both of you have obviously been researching this for a very long time. And yet, I think for many of us, it's actually a very new topic. You know, can you just share from your perspective of been doing this for years and years, what what is it that has changed? Um, and, and perhaps what are the biggest challenges we face to get that sport for everyone, making it fair for for everybody?
2: What's changed is the, the public opinion on this topic now and, and how central it is. And again, it's a positive, but it's also a challenge when you are researching in the area because you are up against, again, perhaps unfounded assumptions, um, opinions that perhaps have no n- n- no, no logical basis. Mm-hmm. And, and that does become a challenge. But it's also, again, part of our role um, is to overcome those challenges um, and hope that in time we can influence and change policy
1: um, and make sure that. Uh, those truths are out there. Yeah no definitely and I think in the time that I've been researching in this area um, we have seen I suppose change in policy, we've seen improvements um, and I think there is still a long way to go but I agree that that's going to come from more conversations, more balanced conversations where a variety of different voices are heard and I think it's also really important to hear from you know, transgender diverse people, ensure that they're heard in all of this because, you know, we can sit here um, and say, you know, our piece on it all, but actually this affects trans and gender diverse people and their voice really ultimately should be the most dominant in all of this, I feel. And why at the moment isn't their
0: voice out there, do you think?
2: Fear. 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 Yes, I think so. And and, and again, you, you touched on it. Uh, we've been researching for a long time, but it's funny how it is still in its infancy. Um, and until more research is conducted, we're not going to have those voices heard.
0: And so ultimately, the research is going to
1: create a safer space for those voices to come out? Precisely. Yeah, yeah. I think so. But... Unfortunately, I think we're still a long way off um, a robust evidence base. Um, definitely um, when it comes to like the role of, of testosterone, which at the minute is the focus um, and waiting for that evidence base, I think, um, is a long way off. So we need to look at the broader picture um, in the meantime. I well,
0: actually was going to be. My last question was, what do you think needs to happen in the kind of immediacy to actually allow those voices to come forward. I mean, how when you say a long time, Beth? How long are we talking? Do you think?
1: I don't know if I'd want to put <laughs> sorry, <laughs> but you're the spot <laughs> precise kind of time frame on it. But I think um, I think we need to see the physiological evidence. Um, but I I'm not. Um, a biologist I'm not a physiologist so I don't know how long that's going to take Um, but I think we need to more broadly work towards um, making society more inclusive and I think that will come a lot like you said Seema through education so educating people you know compared to when I started working in this area there is more knowledge and awareness of who trans people are um, and we need to push that further I think amongst um, very young populations certainly students that I teach there is very good um, awareness and we need to continue with that um, to I suppose really get those those voices heard So people trans people feel confident in, in coming forward at the minute society is not a welcoming place for a lot of trans and gender diverse people so they're fearful about coming forward and just to expand
2: on that um What's happening is in society we we our gender identity is evolving, our understanding mm-hmm. of gender identity is evolving, and as a result of that, that we're seeing um, legal gender status reforms uh, taking place where a gender identity is recognised legally in legislation and the, the human rights framework, mm-hmm. um, and so that's taking place in society and. and we have the conflict that's taking place in sport and I've said it many times but it will be eventually a question of to what extent sport is willing to accept that the change in tide in society in terms of our gender identity and I think for me that it always comes back to that question. So although obviously it's a very challenging space
0: as we've discussed already is there also a sense that it's an exciting time that actually the conversation is
2: being had? Absolutely. I think it is an exciting time and it's it's great to see um, research that you've been working on for so many years being spoken about uh, so openly. Um, one thing I'm working on, um, it, uh, I'm looking at race discrimination uh, as I kind of transition through my research and I'm trying to better link ethnographic research with law and regulation. So um, I'm looking at lived experiences um, as myself as an athlete or uh, in terms of gender and race and linking it to my research to see what the shortfalls are and what the gaps are and and how we can better improve research in the area in in that way.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really interesting and obviously it's a a huge conversation and it's been really nice to hear a different perspective, perhaps just from that biological side that we've heard so many times in in, in the press recently. So if you'd like to find out more about Beth and Seema's work, you can find out more information in the episode description. Thank you. You've been listening to the Research Reimagine podcast by Nottingham Trent University. For all of the latest news from the research community at NTU, follow us on Twitter at NTU underscore research or sign up to our research newsletter by visiting NTU.ac.uk forward slash research. Thanks for listening.